for the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Kate Scott. This is the update on today's show. Every Wednesday, our baseball writers here at The Athletic are looking at a key what-if scenario from a different team's history. Today, we're talking Oakland A's and what if Jeremy Giambi had slid into home in the 2001 ALDS. And the pitch to Long, swung on it, smashed out of the first baseline, base hit in the corner. Giambi on his way to third, and they're going to wave him around. The ball rolls, here's a pitch by Jeter, and he gets the out of the plate. He is out! Oh, he is out! What a play by Derek Jeter! Derek Jeter with one of the most unbelievable plays you will ever see by a shortstop. We discuss the A's What If with beat writer Alex Coffey. It's Wednesday, May 6th. Okay, Alex, so let's refresh our memories and set the stage for this play. 2001, best of five ALDS. The A's took the first two games at Yankee Stadium, and now they're back in Oakland for game three. They're a win away from advancing into the ALCS for the first time since 92. So catch us up on what's going on in the game so far. So the score is one nothing, and Jeremy Giambi, uh, brother of Jason Giambi, gets on base. Here's Jeremy Giambi. Base hit through the hole in the right field. He's not known as the fastest guy on the team, so people are kind of puzzled as to why he's not been run for either with Eric Burns, who's a lot faster, F.P. Santiago, who's on the bench at the time. And Terrence Long is at the plate. Coming in, Long was a 500 hitter in his career against the Yankee right hand. He ropes the ball right down the right field line. And the pitch to Long. Swung on it. Smashed down the first baseline. Base hit in the corner. And Jeremy starts running. And, you know, he's rounding second. Giambi on his way to third. And then he takes a really wide route from third to home plate. And they're going to wave him around. And just runs. Right through. He doesn't slide. He doesn't do a hook slide. He doesn't barrel the catcher over. The throw misses a cutoff, man. Shot into the plate. Out of the plate. And, you know, it's a really, really close call. Jorge Posada, who's the catcher at the time, just snaps him in the back of the leg. Derek Jeter with one of the most unbelievable plays you will ever see by a shortstop. It's not super clear whether he's safe, whether he's out, but there's no instant replay back then. So the home plate umpire, Kerwin Daly, calls him out. Jeremy Giambi's out at the plate. He did not slide. Art Howe argues briefly with Kerwin Danley, and the inning is over. So there's no instant replay. That's that. And the game stays at 1-0. It would have tied it up if he had scored at 1-1. And then the Yankees end up bringing teacher Hall to closer Mariano Rivera in for the last two innings and kind of shuts the door. Yankees win the... Yankees win! And then from there, the Yankees end up taking the next two games, and the Oakland A's, a team that was projected to be a World Series contender, ended up being eliminated in the ALDS. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit and go back to when the ball that comes off a long's bat is bouncing deep down the right field line. Eric Chavez is back in the dugout. What is he seeing? What Eric Chavez focuses on is the fact that Shane Spencer, who was the right fielder for the Yankees that day, a guy that didn't regularly play right field, the Yankees were having a hard time hitting Barry Zito. That Joe Torre, the Yankees manager at the time, just he threw kind of Shane Spencer in there on a whim. There he is in right field, and he misses 
Not one, but two cutoff men. Both cutoff men were missed. Jeter coming down the line, fielded with his bare hand, a shovel to Posada, and Giambi is out. I don't know where he was throwing the ball because it was kind of like this wild, <laughs> yeah. wildly overthrown, you know. It's kind of hard to pinpoint, but all of a sudden, Derek Jeter comes sprinting across the infield to a spot that he really shouldn't have to be, a spot that, you know, no shorts up should have to field. My job is to watch the runner, right? Runner at first was, was Jeremy Giambi. And I uh, saw the ball down the line. Mm -hmm. And my job is to, to one, see if, if there's going to be a play at third base, right? But once you see that Giambi is going to, if Terrence Giambi is going to go home, my job is to then be the third cutoff man to redirect the throw to third base. Now, we don't practice actually shuffle passing the ball to home plate. But my job, if you look at the replay, if I actually wanted to throw the third base, we could have got Terrence at third. He catches it and flips it back to Jorge Posada to nab Giambi out of the plate. I say this very respectfully. The Giambi family is not very fast. <laughs> so I knew he had an opportunity yeah, to get him at the plate. So when Chavez looks back at that play, he kind of sees it as this like ironic dichotomy of things that should not be happening in a major league game. And then in an extraordinary play by Jeter, like, you know what I mean? This juxtaposition yeah. of like throwing off two cutoff men and then Giambi's route around the bases. And then all of a sudden, Derek Jeter swoops in and saves the day with this play that's just kind of unheard of and embodies his ability to be in the right place at the right time. Okay, so you mentioned, Alex, the running route that Giambi took. And that's, I know, one of the questions that's been batted around as well in the last 20 years. Why was Jeremy Giambi even there? Why didn't Art Howe send in Eric Burns? So what did Art Howe have to say about that? Art Howe basically told me that Giambi was hitting really well at that time. I mean, he was swinging the bat very well. And that was part of the reason, you know, some people questioned me not pinch running for him, but we still... Part of the reason I wanted to write the story is I find it kind of fascinating that while he wasn't anywhere near what his brother was in terms of offensive production, Jeremy had put together some solid seasons. I think one year he hit 20 home runs, 2001, the year of the non-slide or the slip or whatever you want to call it. His OPS was third best on the team. He was batting third in that lineup at some point, and that's a lineup with, you know, Jason Giambi and Eric Chavez and Miguel Tejada, you know, big-name guys. He was putting together a really solid season for them, and he was hitting very well in that series. Furthermore, the A's as a whole, granted in a small sample size against Mariana Rivera, they were hitting somewhere around 150 collectively against him, and Jeremy Giambi was batting 250-ish against Mo in four at-bats. You know, Art had a reason to believe that Jeremy would put together a better at bat against Mariana Rivera than Eric Burns or FP Santangelo would. He gave you everything he had. That's all you can ask from any player. He can play for me anything. All right, Alex. So now, almost 20 years later, what does Chavez think? Does he think that Giambi did the right thing in not sliding into home? He told me that he thinks that Giambi would have been more obviously out if he had slid and that he would have taken longer to get to the plate and that the tag would have just been more clear, which I found really interesting because I talked to guys like Terrence Long that were raised in the camp of, if it's a close call at the plate, always slide. You know, he's just not going to call you safe. Like, if it's close, if it's down to the wire, your best chance is to slide. So there's kind of this difference in opinion there. Yeah, did any other teammates weigh in? F.P. Santangelo told me that he thought that Jeremy should have done a hook slide and kind of like, slid around and then like reached back to the plate and kind of like just 
touched it with his hand that he thought he would have escaped Posada's tag that way. If you slide away from the plate and reach back with your hand, it gives Posada less room for error. I mean, he's got to turn and find your hand on the plate if you're sliding past it. If he slides head first and reaches back for the plate, there's no way Posada finds his hand. If he slides away from the plate and reaches for there's no way he finds his hand. I think if he slides, he's safe by a mile. Jeremy himself contemplated just like barreling Posada over because he was exposed. He had his back turned to Jeremy. I thought an interesting part of his perspective there was he said one of the reasons he ended up not doing that was just because he thought of the 1970 All-Star Game when Pete Rose barreled through Ray Fossey and injured him pretty badly. So he kind of had that in his mind, and he was like, what if I ruin this guy's career? So he ended up not doing that. What about their manager? What did Art House say? Well, first of all, he thinks he's safe. <laughs> and by that, every time he sees that call, he says, The umpire missed it again. <laughs> That's what he told me. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks that Giambi did the best that he could in that moment. I'm watching the play, and like I said, they called him out. He didn't slide, so that was the end of the inning, and Ramon was coming back in. And I, had him. I said, Ramon, did you tell him to slide? He said, yeah, ask it, but Adam's told to slide. He's kind of in the Chavez camp where if he had slid, that it would have taken him longer to get to the plate, and, and that what he did it was the right thing to do. What else did Jeremy tell you, other than the thinking about the Fosse and Rose play from the All-Star game years before, now that he's had almost 20 years to reflect on it? For starters, like, it took me a long time to convince him to talk to me. I <laughs> tried to contact him, I think, 10 times, and the final time was right before I was sitting down to write, and I just listed out everyone I had talked to, like, in his life, you know, <laughs> like his college coaches and his teammates and his manager and I think at that point he finally understood that this wasn't meant to be some sensationalistic hit piece and then he just called you know you talk to everyone that played with him or coached him and they all say that he really just loved to hit that he could hit all day he was always in the cages he was a guy that really grinded his way up to the big leagues was cut from his varsity high school baseball team he Walked down at Cal State, Florida, and you know, unlike Jason, like none of this was mapped out for him. You know, it was not like this foregone conclusion that he was going to make it to the big leagues, and he makes it, and then his entire career is kind of defined by this one moment in time that just happens to be linked to one of the greatest moments in a Hall of Fame career. And it's interesting because, like, I know how much he loves baseball, so he's, he's still like involved in baseball on his own terms. He's teaching hitting lessons, but he, he doesn't watch baseball anymore. He told me he doesn't like watch a lot of baseball. He watches a lot of football and basketball. And when he told me that, it kind of made me think like, you know, maybe teaching these private hitting lessons is a way for him to still be involved in the game. He loves talking mechanics. He loves that part of the game. But maybe he doesn't have to worry about, you know, especially this year, a year when Derek Jeter was elected to the Hall of Fame. He doesn't have to worry about watching ESPN or watching MLB Network and like seeing uh, the flip play again. And then talking to him, it doesn't really seem like he 
looks back at that time is like through the lens of his legacy or how it affects him personally. It really just seems like he's bothered by it because he really wanted to win a World Series. He wanted to do that for his team and he thought that that team had the talent. What I've kind of gotten out of this is that it's not really slide or not slide. You know, there are a lot of other variables at play. Alex, this was great. I love the piece. Thanks for coming on with us today. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Stay safe. To read Alex's article on the A's What If, which transitions into a wonderful feature on Jeremy Giambi, just click the link in the description notes of today's podcast. Coming up in the next week here on The Update, we're going to expand on the conversation about the NBA's G League that we started when we had Mark Spears on recently. Ethan Strauss is going to join us to continue the discussion that Napa's Jalen Green started. Andrew Baggerly, extra bags, swings by the pod to break down the results of his recent fascinating giant survey. And on our next show, the San Jose Earthquakes were on the pitch for just two matches before COVID-19 postponed their season indefinitely. So homegrown star Tommy Thompson fills us in on how they're staying sharp, what else he's doing to pass the time, and what he likes about the new regime in San Jose. Don't forget, you can now listen to us through any of your Google devices. Just tell your assistant, play the update with Kate Scott Podcast. And if you aren't a subscriber yet to the written arm of The Athletic, well, now is the time to sign up because we've currently got a free 90-day trial subscription offer. That's right, three months absolutely free. All you have to do is visit theathletic.com slash the update. That's theathletic.com slash the update. Sign up and you get 90 days of reading Alex and Bags for free. So enjoy and you're welcome. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love for you to rate us, review, subscribe. All of that really does matter. And we thank you if you've already done just that. For all of us here at The Update, thanks to Alex for stopping by and sharing that wonderful interview sound with us. Thanks to the MLB Network, Fox, the Yankees, and the A's for the game calls and the Jeter sound. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Kate Scott. Have a healthy and safe few days, everybody. Looking forward to talking some footy with you and Tommy Thompson on Friday.